turn to Romans 8. I love that thought, one hope endures. One verse that's been gripping my attention lately is Galatians 5.5. 5. We, through the Spirit, by faith, wait for the hope of righteousness. And that's the hope, the expectation that all things will be rectified, all things summed up in Christ. That's the enduring hope. There's a record book, an attendance book in heaven, according to Malachi. So let the record show that many have traveled today from distances to be here, even after a terrific snowstorm just barely brushed us and hit the Midwest a lot harder. The record does show we have not forsaken the assembling of ourselves together, but we've done so for the purpose of encouragement. Today I want to speak on preaching and living the good news, the good news, emphasis on good. And we may not get to the passage I want to look at today, but I want you to know right off the start that Romans 8, 1 to 13 has 12 references to the flesh. And I want to cap all caps for flesh because there's flesh as a suprahuman inimical power against us, against God, against the gospel. Then there is flesh with a small F-L-E-S-H, which is our frail, unaided humanity. And then there is, we're going to talk about Israel after the flesh, I-A-F, which is simply Israel in its hereditary descent from Abraham. And then we're going to talk about, in this passage, and you can look at this on your own, we also have 12 times the spirit. And I was kind of intrigued and woke up this morning at 4.30 thinking of this, and so I went to the study and hammered it out a little bit. It's almost as if Paul is putting this right in our face, that there is an Israel after the flesh or an Israel that's controlled by and dominated by the flesh to seek approval and justification by the works of the law or by any other human effort, even supreme human effort. Then he puts right in our face 12 times the spirit, the way that we live in this clashing juncture of the ages following the Christ event is the spirit by the spirit. And that makes us anyone, Jew or Gentile, male or female, slave or free. That makes us the Israel of God, the eschatological Israel. And so we have here the indication of flesh versus spirit, 12 times each. Then when you get to 814, it's only the spirit. And the spirit takes us all the way through to Romans 8, 26 and 27. He makes intercession for us in this juncture of the ages because we don't even know what to pray for or how to pray as we ought to pray. And so he makes intercession, making groanings for us to the throne of God and for really for the kingdom to come. So that's if we don't get there. If we don't get there, we'll get there sometime. So Romans 8, 1 to 13, make it 2 to 13, 2 to 13, 12 verses, 12 times the flesh, Israel the flesh, after the flesh, 12 times the spirit, Israel after the spirit. How do we preach and live the good news? Only by the spirit. That's the spirit of God, he's called in one occasion, the spirit of life on another, the spirit of adoption, 
the spirit of Christ, the spirit who raised Christ from the dead, the spirit who lives within your mortal members. There's so many names for him. And he is the comforter, the parakletos. And if you were going to get theological, it would be called pneumatology. To the Pharisees who sought honor and respect and prestige from men, Jesus said, how can you believe? While accepting glory from one another, you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. The religious leaders in Jerusalem who gloried in being true Israel, they thought or assumed, were not the Israel of God. But they were an Israel that is not Israel because they were determined and directed by the flesh, the supra-human enemy of the spirit. And as I said today, whatever happens on the gridiron, the saints are destined to win. See, Phil, some people get it. Even if New Orleans loses, and I'm, I'm saying that with my with the great reservations because of our fans that we have, especially in Mississippi, who root for the saints. But we are, we are the saints, so we are more than conquerors. So the religious leaders prided themselves on being Israel because of what they were by the flesh. Under the flesh, the suprahuman adversarial enemy in the apocalyptic war... They gloried in their own flesh, small, lowercase letters, and their own performance, their own outward external observances, beginning most notably with circumcision for the males or for the sons of the ladies in Israel. Determined by the flesh, all caps, they put the righteous one to death. Determined by the flesh. They put the righteous one to death. 1 Peter 3.18. Though he was brought to life by the Spirit. He was brought to life out of that death by the Spirit. Israel, according to the flesh, is not the Israel of God. Israel, according to the flesh, lowercase, is not the Israel of God if they are directed and determined by the flesh, all caps, flesh. We're really dealing with three kinds of flesh here. Really, the fourth, if you consider Christ became flesh. Four different meanings. Those who were dominated by the flesh, all caps, that suprahuman adversarial power, insisted on the crucifixion of the true, single, inclusive representative of Israel. The Israel of God, who was also in one person, the God of Israel. But he was raised from the dead. He was raised out of death to victory over death by the Spirit. So this action by the one true God in three persons, triumphed over the action of the suprahuman power of the flesh that became communally effective in a people. 
By the action of the one God acting communally in three persons, the mercy of God triumphed over the judgment of men. Read that again sometime on your own and consider 1 Peter 3.18. He, the just one, the righteous one, died for all the unrighteous, being put to death by the flesh, but raised out of death by the spirit. We have the flesh and the spirit there as opposing powers. There's no equality there, though, because the spirit is divine. The flesh is simply suprahuman. Jesus died in behalf of the very people who insisted on his crucifixion. If that is in love. In the same way, and in the same verse, therefore, Peter declares that the righteous one, memories of Romans 1.17, rooted in Habakkuk 2.4, died in behalf of the unrighteous. His death was the means, therefore, not of their condemnation, but of their rectification and ours. It was the way God reconciled them, along with all the world in Christ, not imputing their trespasses to them. Consider that. Not even the trespass of insisting on the crucifixion of their Messiah the Savior of the world. This, to me, is astonishing. The unrighteous were given righteousness, given righteousness, through the death upon which they insisted in their unbelief and defiance against God. Let me say that sentence again because it sounds so strange. The unrighteous were given righteousness through the death upon which they insisted in their unbelief and defiance against God. Romans 5, 6, Christ died for the ungodly in behalf of the ungodly. For sinners, while we were yet sinners, and while all of our sin was embodied in the insistence on the crucifixion of God's Son. Romans 5.8, Christ's death reconciled God's enemies to God. Romans 5.10, he was raised from the dead for our justification. Romans 4.25, our justification, the justification of all who were formerly in Adam, all human beings. Romans has that little word all 77 times. We should get the point. So he, was, he who was raised from the dead for our justification, because our justification, also known as the justification of the ungodly, in Romans 4, 5, was for us all. All of us. Us in two ways. Us, you and me. U.S., universal salvation. All of us. And so, by one righteous act, in Romans 5.18, of the one man, the final Adam, eschatos Adam, Jesus Christ, all were made righteous. All the unrighteous were given righteousness because he who was made to be sin 
was also made to be our righteousness by God. On the cross, he becomes our sin. In resurrection, he becomes our righteousness. So that what? So that no flesh shall ever boast in the presence of God. No flesh, small, lowercase letters, no people controlled by the flesh, all caps, will ever be able to boast before God. The one who died for the sins of Israel died for the sins of all people in Adam. He took away the sin of Israel in the context of taking away the sin of the world as God's lamb. He justified us by his blood. All of this discloses an immense amount about God. It gives an extraordinary account about who God is, what God is, that he was for us in this way, that God was for us in this way, astonished Paul, also astonished John, who said God loved us so much that he gave his only begotten son. So that not only will no one perish, but those who believe and have faith elicited in them by the Holy Spirit can actually now in this clashing juncture of the ages, during the evil age, actually experience the life of the age to come, even now. In the mere, in the mere believing. For as the scripture says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So all of this discloses an account of God that is precious, that he was for us in this way. He did not spare his only son, but freely handed him over in behalf of us all. Romans 11, make that Romans 8:32 and 11:32. And having given his son, how will he not give all things to the all in behalf of whom Jesus died? How will he not now give all for whom Christ died all things, the inheritance of the entire universe of proportionate being? Romans 11, Romans 8, 31 to 32, and always 11, 32 too. The death of Jesus to remove sin, called expiation in Romans 3.25, compared to Hebrews 9.26. The death of Jesus to remove sin, to put off the flesh, all caps, Colossians 2.11, and to defeat death was also the death by which Jesus became the curse that's brought about by the sin-controlled law of Moses. He was made a curse for us. Because the law itself, controlled by sin, is a curse. It's the letter that kills in 2 Corinthians 3, 6-9. By the death of Jesus and his resurrection out of death into new life, he defeated the principalities and powers whose only weapons are sin, death, and the flesh-commandeered law. That's why Paul said that had rulers of the cosmos known, if the rulers of this world had known 
that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, he's saying in essence, would be their undoing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. That's where supernatural powers come in. If the rulers of this cosmos had known that the death of Jesus would undo them, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.8. By the cross and resurrection, God paraded, says Paul, using the Roman triumphal procession analogy in Colossians 2.15. By the cross and resurrection, God paraded these principalities and powers as defeated enemies in a triumphal parade. These enemies were once called gods and lords because of their dominion over the peoples. They were led in a triumphal procession, having gloriously vanquished them. Paul knew, as his audience would have known in Colossae, that Vercingetorix of Gaul was the general of the armies against Julius Caesar, and that Julius Caesar defeated his armies and brought Vercingetorix back to Rome and put him on a little chariot and paraded him through the city streets to illustrate their victory. And that's what Paul's talking about. By the cross and resurrection, God paraded these principalities and powers who use the leverage of the sin and death and the fear of death over us in a triumphal procession, having gloriously vanquished them. Colossians 2.15 Even the devil, as he's called, Diabolos, who leveraged the power of death over humanity for the whole life long, meaning all the life of Adam long. The devil used the reality of death as leverage over people to keep them enslaved to fear. That's why Romans eight fourteen and 15 comes in. He has given us the spirit of adoption, not to fear again as we did under Adam's rule but as a spirit of adoption, filial love and respect by which we say, Abba. So the devil, who used the leverage over humanity for the whole lives of mankind in order to do his bidding, he was destroyed by the death of Christ. And that means he was destroyed with what Hebrews, or Isaiah rather, 10.22 to 23 calls, a total destruction overflowing with righteousness. By that destruction, even he and all the fallen angels will be transformed to their original created state. There would be no more devil if he was thrown into a lake of fire to suffer forever, but there is even also, even more so, no more devil if he's transformed into his original created glory. This is how God wreaks vengeance. For the death which the devil held people hostage to fear by was defeated in the Christ event. Hebrews 2.14 and 15. John 12.31. Now is the prince of this world deposed. Now, if I am lifted up, I will draw all to myself. All of creation, all of created reality is what he's talking about, human beings included. It's kind of humbling to realize that redemption is for all created reality diachronically throughout history, and human beings are just, we're included. We're not all of it. We're part of it, and I don't know about you, but I'm grateful. 
John 16:11 The prince of this world has been judged For in Adam all die says 1 Corinthians 15:22 but in Christ all will be made alive because Christ's death and resurrection out of death means life for all of humanity formally in Adam which is all of humanity Not only that but Christ's death followed inevitably on the third day according to the traditional facts of the gospel by his resurrection from the dead resulted in justification call that slash rectification to get the full meaning of it the setting right justification rectification for all of humanity and that's why once again I cannot avoid Romans 5:18 Romans 5:18 calls it the justification of life why because the problem what went wrong is all humanity was dead in Adam so how do you set right death by giving life so justification is the actual giving of life the making alive of people with Christ's life that conquered death that sets a, that sets right the problem of people being in death apart from God is to be brought into life with Christ that overcame death that's what justification ultimately is and so we have and let me do this whole phrase in the greek di i'm not going to do both english and greek di this is greek this exactly how it looks in my greek text that i study d which is short for dia for through or by enos enos means where we kind of get the word at least the sound of the word unique from that enos which means one one and only one through one and then we have this word dia one long word dia kaio matos that means one righteous action a righteous deed a righteous action dikaio matos dikaio matos actually the accent falls here that's the key to pronunciation getting the accents right then i hate writing z's in the greek but here it is z o e s d enos dia dia keomatos zoes that's life zoe life so it says through one righteous act now i i was premature in that one first we have the word ace e i s that means two it's a directional preposition ace and then we have I wasn't going to do this that's why I'm kind of bobbing and weaving here then it continues with this word well I wonder what that word is pantos oh that means all without exception ace pantos through one righteous act ace pantos to all for all came something in the greek that looks like this dikaio that word again dikaio sin dikaiosin and then that means justification or rectification and then we have zoes see the lord has a sense of humor he makes me write it twice pantas dikaiosin zoes to all for all justification of life it's just back to back it doesn't say justifying life or life giving justification it says that we would say the justification that is life 
In Ephesians 2.5, it says it this way. We were dead in trespasses, dead in sins, and God made us alive together with Christ. What do we do in between? Nothing. What has believing got to do with it? Believing's got to do with enjoying it, perceiving it, and participating in Messiah's fidelity and experiencing the life of the coming age in a meaningful way, not the total way, but in a meaningful way even now in this transient evil age. The very fact that it's transient makes me feel good. Transient. Passing. Temporary. So, through one act of righteousness, which is Christ's obedience all the way to the extent of death by crucifixion, through one act of righteousness by which Christ became sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5, 20. I'm preaching the gospel here. By which Christ became sin for us. And us means all because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Through one act of righteousness by which Christ became sin for us, in behalf of us, the justification, rectification that is life from the dead was brought about for all human beings. Brought to them, brought for them, made all alive, in other words. This was dramatically demonstrated by Jesus' resurrection from the dead, by which he became righteousness for us. He became sin for us in his death. He becomes righteousness for us in his resurrection because he was raised for our justification. You see, this is all preaching the gospel, but it's going to go into living according to the gospel. And it's also going to take us on a runway into Galatians. Because Paul confronted Peter, the first pope, at Antioch. You know why? Peter stood condemned because he wasn't living according to the gospel. He withdrew from eating, from table fellowship, and even allowing Gentile Christians to participate in the Eucharist. Because James sent down an investigative committee to see how Peter, whose gospel to the, uh, to the circumcision, how he was doing down there amongst those pagans. Peter withdrew. Paul watched this happen over the course of many days. Then he saw his own missionary partner, Barnabas, withdraw, and then he said, that tears it. And he got up and lambasted Peter because he was not living And literally walking correctly according to the gospel that I'm preaching to you today. There is a life of grace that issues from the gospel of the grace of God. So then, in his death, he became sin for us. In his resurrection, he becomes righteousness for us. Us being U.S., us, double entendre, us, all of us, U.S., universal salvation, By the universal inclusion in Jesus Christ of all of us formerly in Adam. Now you can see, and this again leads into Galatians, if we go there. You might not have to, I might have Galatians done by the time I finish Romans. But now you can see the devastating effects, I hope, of another gospel. And we can understand why Paul was appalled by the Galatian imminent defection. They were on the verge of defecting. And why he was so adamant to put down and pull down the strongholds 
of another gospel which he called not good news at all. After having effectively seen Christ billboarded, that's the best way I can say it, placarded, preached, portrayed among you as crucified, Christ portrayed among you as crucified, at which time the Spirit came to them and evoked faith. He said, you began by the Spirit. Are you going to now be perfected under the dominion of the flesh? What? Are you crazy? People say the definition of insanity is doing the same behavior over and over again, expecting a different result. I don't, that's not a definition for insanity, because sometimes you do get a different result. <laughs> Call me crazy. But insanity is seeing Christ crucified and having done it all and then receiving the Holy Spirit and then thinking you're going to complete your salvation by something you do in the flesh. For them, the hot button issue was circumcision for the males. And that would be followed by the following of calendar events, holy days of obligation, kosher dietary laws, laws of purification that somehow distinguish you favorably over others called hyperophania, which I'm going to still teach on someday. But that'll be a tough one. So I hope only the tough guys and tough gals come that day. Tough guys and gals. Man, my, my father would be crucified today if he lived. You know what he called a waitress? He would call her, thanks, doll. Can you imagine calling somebody doll now? You talk about toxic femininity. I mean, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say such a word. But imagine that. And he, he didn't, there was no malice in those guys in World War II. They would use that phrase and they would never think, I'm greater as a man than she is as a woman. Doll was like a thing like guys and dolls. It was a complimentary thing that you said. And he would, I would cringe a little bit because I'm from a different generation and he would say, thanks, doll, to a girl, to a woman, a lady. I don't know. What do you call him now? A, a person of great eminence that came and waited on us at the table. And, and I'd say, he called her doll. But so guys and dolls better be tough when you come out for hyperophania. The flesh. Though eschatologically defeated is still actively deployed. Here's a great example. Samuel goes to Saul, cuts his tassel off, his royal tassel, and he says, today the kingdom has been taken from you and given to another. But Saul kept on going. Saul kept on trying to kill David, the other. That's what happened at the cross. Satan was removed. His de he was deposed. The royal tassel was cut off by the sword of the word, but he still continues throughout the juncture of this age. So the flesh, though crucified and put off in Christ's crucifixion, still remains an active, supernatural, suprahuman power. It's not a human power. It's a suprahuman power, still active, because we live in the juncture of two ages, and we are embattled. There's an agona. That's why universal salvation alone can't handle the fact that we're in the most intense time of conflict in all of human history. It can't handle that unless you understand apocalyptic theology and the battle that's going on, the agona, the arena, which is what Romans is going to bring us to very shortly, then the battle still goes on. So imagine the defection when Christ was billboarded as crucified by the apostle in his founding apostolic visit. 
and they had begun by the Spirit, they were foolishly considering under the influence of opposing missionaries of being brought to completion by the flesh, especially by circumcision. Totally against what Paul said in Colossians 2.10 to a bunch of pagan saints, you are already complete in Christ, who on the cross put off the flesh through the circumcision of Christ. In other words, you're already circumcised in Christ because the flesh has been put off, the real flesh has been put off at the cross. The flesh, all caps, though eschatologically defeated at the cross, is still actively deployed in history against the spirit in the ongoing history of this transient evil age. And that's what it is, evil. After being awakened to faith by the spirit, to return to the controlling power of the flesh, to me, is the definition of insanity. Oh, foolish Galatians, he said. That's the definition of folly. If you don't like insanity, we'll just call it folly. Foolishness. In fact, Paul, if you think that I've ever been hot under the collar in this pulpit, you have not seen anything yet. If you could see Paul's anger radiating out through the pages in Galatians, he said to them, I'm going to tell you, I, Paul, I, I'm telling you this, he says, as the apostolic delegate, there are a lot of men and women today who say they've been visited by God and given a commission. And therefore, those who have truly been visited by God and given a commission are looked at askance by people. I heard a person that I used to admire that knew more verses in the Bible than anyone I ever knew. And I watched him on TV all the time. And I saw him on TV. He's very old now. He's elderly, but he was teaching. And he said the Holy Spirit visited him and told him many, many years ago to tell this generation that they were the rapture generation. So I'm thinking, well, did God really visit him and really say that to him after all these years? So in other words, there are many people that claim a visitation of God, a confrontation with Jesus Christ or something of that kind. But you've got to use discernment. What gospel are they preaching? Or did they mishear him when he came? Maybe he said, I want you to preach the gospel that all will be justified through Jesus Christ. And he misheard it as this is the rapture generation. He's getting up there in age, too. So, and I'm not rebuking him or his wife. But anyways, but the point is, Paul was visited by Jesus Christ. He had a true apocalyptic vision. He said, I, Paul, am telling you that if you males in Galatia, three churches in northern Galatia, if you males submit to circumcision under the pressure of these opposing Jewish Christian missionaries, Christ will profit you nothing at all. That doesn't mean Christ won't still save them. It means that you will begin to look at Christ as having no real value in your livingness anymore. You'll set him apart as just another religious figure with Muhammad and Buddha and a bunch of other people and other religious figures. You'll set him apart. You may put him on a cross in the front of your church or put him in, a, in some kind of relic area and put him over there and say, thank God he died for my sins and he rose from the dead. And that's it. And he's no longer involved in your life through the spirit of Christ 
And so he's no value to you. you. It's a subjective thing. I'm telling you, he said, if you bow to circumcision, you're going to have, you're going to view Christ eventually as having no profit or value to you at all. You'll be out of fellowship with him. You'll be dead while you're living. You'll be under the flesh. That's pretty serious stuff. They were, they were starting to lose their identity through a faulty exegesis and a false gospel. They were losing their identity as already being the people of God, the Israel of God, through Christ's finished work, through the cross of Christ. So Paul got really, I love it, that he did get hot under the collar. So if you males, well, that's Galatians 5 too. He then says you've been... You have fallen from grace. But we, remember, he says, in his founding visit, we, your real identity, you know what we do? We, through the Spirit, wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. We wait for the hope of the rectification of all things by faith. If the Spirit visited you in your little room and told you that, preach to this generation to wait for the righteousness that's the rectification of all created reality by faith through the Spirit, then I'd believe that God visited you. Otherwise, I can't believe God visited to you, visited you and told you to preach to this generation that they're the last generation before a secret rapture takes out a few people and then starts raining hailstones down on the rest of us. I can't believe it. I don't believe you. As sacred as your name may be to others, I cannot do it. So then, Paul says, you're going to sideline him. You'll sideline Christ. The moment you start bowing to this other gospel, you will sideline him, make him just another religious figure who somehow died for our sins. We don't understand what it means. And he rose from the dead but has no value in my present existence or livingness. I just go on just like every other person in the world who doesn't believe, and I'm glad I got that on my side. And he literally is on the sidelines. So, how tragic is this? Not only that, But by accepting a different gospel, which Paul says, that's no gospel. Gospel means good news. That's not good news at all. In fact, cursed is anyone, including an angel from heaven or me myself. It's rumored that I preach another gospel now. If I am, let me be accursed. Let me be anathema. And he wasn't, of course. If by accepting another gospel, Paul says, you on top of Christ not being of any value to you, your whole life is going to be vying with others for honor. Like the people that crucified Jesus, the religious leaders. And you'll try to distinguish yourself from others in some superior way that heaps disfavor on others. They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with its affections and its passions and ambitions. And if you walk by the Spirit, you're going to experience unity. But instead, they provoke one another to envy. Why? Because the Jews were saying circumcision and these calendar laws and these kosher dietary laws that we follow distinguish us from you pagans. And what does that do? It causes them to envy them and say, oh, yeah, well, our uncircumcision. Now, I don't know if the men took their robes off. Our uncircumcision distinguishes us from you because haven't you heard God forsook you people 
And so there's a battle. That's exactly what was going on in Rome. Not disrobing, but they did have gyms where they didn't wear anything. So they circumcision or uncircumcision, Paul says, neither one of them is anything. They're nothing. They're nothing. What is something is a faith that works by love. Galatians 5, 6. What is something is a new creation that was brought about by the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, you're going to sideline him. You're going to provoke one another envy. Dissensions and factions will arise. And guess what? Dissensions and factions and those that are in the midst of it, they cannot inherit the kingdom of God. They will not inherit the kingdom of God while they're fighting and envying and dissenting and factions and envies. That's Galatians 5.26, 5.21, 5.19 through 21. That's what it means not to communally as a church inherit and experience the kingdom of God now. You can't do it under the flesh. It's an enmity with God. The the only way to experience and inherit the kingdom of God even now is through the Holy Spirit's action for righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit is the kingdom of God. So without this gospel, there is no livingness that actually experiences even now the kingdom of God before it fully comes in its totality with the parousia, the coming of Christ. That's what's at stake here. Right now, in this generation. But if you accept this other gospel, the flesh will effectively be in charge again. And if you try to be approved through your own human efforts and adherence to any law that falsely promises to make you approved by God, you've, you're, Christ will be of no value to you. While you sing, oh, how I love Jesus. All those who seek honor from men cannot believe. You can't believe, he said. And for us, we would say it this way. You can't participate in Messiah's faithfulness. And in the joy and the peace of what he has done, if you're still trying to approve or gain approval by God by your performance. So as those who seek honor from men cannot believe, as Jesus said in John 5, those who are dominated and directed by the flesh cannot submit to the law of God. I'm already exegeting Romans 8. They cannot submit to the law of God, which is to love one another. Who is Jesus? He is God. What's his law? Love one another as I have loved you. How can I love somebody as Jesus loved me unless the Holy Spirit of Christ who raised him from the dead produces the fruit of that love? That's the point. The the law of God that the flesh cannot submit to People dominated by the flesh cannot submit. That's why Jesus said to the same men, I know you. There is no love of God in you. There's no love of God in you. So how can you say we are Israel when God said, listen, Israel, you will love me. You will love God. You are lovers of God. How can you say you are Israel? I know you, he said. There is no love of God in you. Why? Because you can't believe you're seeking honor from men. You're, think, you're seeking something, some approval in the external realm that will distinguish you above others. In Galatia, it was circumcision. It can be anything. 
I went to Bible school once, and only people who went out on bus ministry were able to stand up and receive honor and applause. The rest of us who had to work didn't go on bus ministry. We're sitting there saying, well, they're distinguished as superior to us. Not, and that's just an example. Fan it out and use any number of examples you want. Seeking some way to be honored by men. Paul said, God forbid, and that's kind of a weird way of saying it, but may it never come into being that I should ever glory in anything but the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ by which I was crucified to the world, and that means to the way the world does things, approving itself before men. And the world, as far as I'm concerned, was crucified to me and its way of doing things too. I'd have to say today, Christendom is crucified to me because that's the way the world does things today. So, I'm actually literally hot under the collar. In Rome, the ungospel of an opposing Jewish Christian missionary had brought certain Jewish Christians and some Gentiles under the yoke of the law that was weakened by the flesh. The law itself was weakened by the flesh, all caps, and commandeered by sin, all caps, leading to the death that is the mindset of the flesh. It resulted in those Jewish Christians glorying, boasting, doing a red zone dance or an end zone dance, or whatever it is. It resulted in those Jewish Christians glorying in that which they and the new missionaries in Galatia viewed to outwardly distinguish them to be superior to the Gentile Christians who were uncircumcised, who refused to be circumcised or to circumcise their sons. So the Jewish Christian missionary, and he was a Christian, and he did believe the traditional facts of the gospel. The Jewish Christian missionary whom Paul opposed, and guess what Paul was? A Jewish Christian missionary, too. Only he had an apocalypse of Jesus Christ that reduced him down to zero. So, the Jewish Christian missionary whom Paul opposes in Rome, in Romans, not unlike the missionary opponents that we're going to meet of Paul among the churches in North Galatia, they all believed that the Gentiles had to become Jews or Israel by being circumcised to start with, then to follow feast days, new moons, and by following kosher dietary practices. And you know what Paul said to them? Shocking. He said, you want to go under dietary restrictions and do you want to go by days and calendar months? You used to do that when you were druids worshiping idols in the phallic cult. You, you're no different by going under the law that's been controlled by the flesh than to be under the flesh that was controlled by the flesh. You want to go back there? Paul said some stuff in Galatians, and I'm on three, four, I'm reading four commentaries at once on it. It's knocking me right for a loop. I love it. But it's applying to Romans. In Romans, not unlike the missionary opponents of Paul in North and Galatia, they were saying you can be distinguished above others by obedience to this, and you'll actually become Israel, you Gentiles. But Paul insisted in the height of op his apostolic audacity that the Israel of God 
only used once in all the scriptures, the Israel of God in Galatians 6.16, are determined, or that way, they are that, not by circumcision or by uncircumcision for that matter. Follow the logic in 6.15 and 6.16 of Galatians. But by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is the means of God for making all things new. Follow the logic, Galatians 6.14 to 16. So why is uncircumcision also ruled to be nothing by Paul's gospel? Why is uncircumcision also ruled to be nothing? Circumcision, uncircumcision, nothing. What's really something is a new creation. Why is uncircumcision also ruled to be nothing by Paul's gospel? Because the insistence of the opposing missionaries that the Gentiles must be circumcised and follow other Jewish stricter strictures of the Mosaic law, in turn provoked a reaction by the pagans or the Gentiles, a reaction by some who then started to glory in their uncircumcised state, as if that was a badge of honor and distinguished them in a positive way from the Jews. And, of course, then we know from Romans 11, where we're going Wednesday nights, Gentile Christians were saying, after all, God has forsaken these people, hasn't he? I mean, look what they did to their Savior. Look what they did to our Lord. And Paul says, you guys got it all wrong, too, you Gentiles. So there's dissension. It all comes from the flesh, not the spirit. That's why we're supposed to, with humility of mind, maintain the peaceful unity of the spirit. So, final gear. The question we're dealing with in Romans 11 is exactly that. God forsook Israel after the flesh, didn't he? Flesh, small, F-L-E-S-H. No, he didn't. He will save all Israel after the flesh. But he doesn't call Israel Israel if they're dominated by the all caps flesh or anybody else for that matter. This is a fine-tuned, this is fine-tuning a fruitful insight called the Israel of God that this whole Thing began with a few years ago at the farm. And so Paul is showing in Romans 8 that a life determined by the Spirit is what constitutes the approved livingness of true Israel. God even said it to Ezekiel I will put my Spirit among them, who? Israel, and cause them to walk according to my statutes. The sum of those statutes is love for one another. Those who are under the flesh can't submit to that law because they're in the flesh that's standing against the spirit. So all of this is, I'm already exegeting Romans 8. You don't even know it yet. And so it is living according to the gospel, unlike what Peter was doing at Antioch, Cephas he was called, when a certain investigative committee from James came down to see how our boy is doing down there. So it's better not to be anybody's boy, is what I'm saying. If I were the servant of men, I would no longer be the servant of Christ, Paul said. So Peter said, well, I'm James's boy. I'm the, I'm the, the preacher boy from Jerusalem, the church of Jerusalem. I was commissioned to preach the gospel to the uncircumcision, Paul to the circumcision, or to the circumcision, Paul to the uncircumcision. So let's get on there and see how Peter's doing. Now, whether or not they went down there to see if he was 
eating with Gentiles is not the case. Peter just assumed, well, they're here. I better not eat with the Gentiles anymore. Imagine excluding them not only from eating meals, but from the Eucharist. No, you guys can't come to communion. Oh, man, that's serious stuff we're talking about here. So the apostle is ingeniously distinguishing not Jews from Gentiles, but a true Israel constituted by Jews and Gentiles. There's no distinction. Slaves and free, no distinction. Males and females, no distinction. Formed by what God did in Christ. He's distinguishing that entity formed by what God did in Christ and proved approved in practice by being led by the spirit and not by the flesh. Here we've come back to what has proven still to be a fruitful insight regarding the Israel of God, full circle. Namely, that it's a people, the Israel of God is a people united to Christ by co crucifixion which is the true circumcision so what did Paul say to the Philippians we are the circumcision we have no confidence in the flesh we boast in Christ Jesus we're the true circumcision beware of the dogs beware of the mutilators beware of those who want to circumcise you your males we are the circumcision because we've been co-crucified with Christ which is the circumcision of Christ Circumcision and uncircumcision are nothing. In his death, Christ put off the flesh so that by doing so, he ruled out the flesh as having anything to do with our identity as the Israel of God. What is really something is a new creation brought about by the co-crucifixion and resurrection. The rule that the new creation follows is to be led by the Spirit, Romans eight fourteen to 16, Galatians 5.18, as the eschatological Israel and to have the Spirit produce the fruit of love and motivate us to a service of love but to one another. This is what Paul calls in Romans 7.6, service in the newness of the Spirit and not the oldness, the obsolescence of the letter, Romans 7.6. I'm going to do an excursus on that sometime. Here's the last thing I want to say, not really. So, Three quidsits. Quidsit. What is quidsit? What is it? What is it? The quiddity of a thing, the essence of a thing. Israel after the flesh, small lowercase letters, F-L-E-S-H. Who are they? It's Israel as all the descendants of Abraham through Isaac. The literal, hereditary, physical descendants of Abraham through Isaac. That is Israel after the small F-L-E-S-H. Hereditary Israel, all of whom will be saved. Romans eleven twenty six. Israel determined by the flesh. Israel under control of the flesh. Whether of the 12 tribes of Israel. 12 times flesh speaks of the 12 tribes of Israel determined by the flesh, which is not my people. 12 times the spirit. The 12 tribes of Israel under the domination of the spirit, which are my people in the same place, not and my people. So what is Israel determined by the flesh, which is the enemy of the spirit? What is that Israel? They are not Israel. 
but a people claiming to be favored by God on the basis of their works or geographical homeland or hereditary descent. Now, who are the Israel of God? Quidsit, who is the Israel of God? It is, by the answer, Israel kata numa. Israel determined by the Spirit, saved and in God-approved livingness in the present. Israel of God, then, is the true historical prolepsis or forecast of the eschatological reconciliation of all things, the universal restoration, apokatastasis pantone, the anakephaliosis, the summary of everything in Christ Jesus, the palingenesia, the again genesis in Matthew 19.28, the universal instauration, what I call it, the universal diachronic transfiguration of all created reality so that God who was once in Israel as Shekinah will be all in all in the same way as the glory of all created reality. God will be all in all. The future of God is his own transformation by being universally joined with all created reality in all of its times. At this point, we can take another run. I'm going to read Romans 8 real quick. If you have to go, go ahead. Romans 8, my translation, 1 to 16. And I only to note one thing. Please note, there are 12 references to the flesh, which all are related to F-L-E-S-H. The ones I'm going to be accentuating here relate to the inimical or adverse suprahuman power. And there are 12 references to the spirit. There are 12 tribes in Israel. I think what was happening here was Paul was putting right in our faces, Israel, 12 tribes under the flesh, is not true Israel. Israel, all 12 tribes under the spirit, is true Israel. Has nothing to do with physical ethnicity. Has nothing to do with gender or social class or caste has everything to do with what God did in Christ and what he made you as a new creation. So here, I'm going to just accentuate all this. Therefore, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. For the law of the spirit of life, which is the power of the, there it is, first use of spirit, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, has liberated me. Paul continues, the first person singular from Romans 7 can apply to all of us. From the law of sin and death, or the power of sin and death. For what the Sinaitic law, Moses' law, was powerless to do because it was rendered powerless by the flesh. Not my human weakness, but by the suprahuman power called the flesh, by which insisted on Christ's death, for example. So, verse 3, what the Sinaitic Mosaic law was powerless to do because it was rendered powerless by the flesh, capital all caps, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that's small f-l-e-s-h, meaning humanity, and for sin, that means on behalf of it or for a re- with a reference to taking it away, God condemned sin, capital S-I-N, not human beings, in the flesh, small f-l-e-s-h, that's the flesh of his sinless son, in order that the righteousness required by the law, God-approved livingness, would be fulfilled in us, that is, in those who comport themselves or walk in dependence upon not 
In the flesh, that's our human flesh there. You have to distinguish this throughout. It's, a, it's like brain surgery. They, who, those who comport themselves in the flesh, that is in our present creaturely frailty, not determined by the flesh, all caps, but by the Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, capital S-P-I-R-I-T, who raised Christ from the dead and who resides in our bodily members. Verse 5, for those who are determined, you call it dominated or controlled or led by the flesh and not the spirit, flesh, all caps, think and intend with the flesh. But those who are determined by the spirit, think and intend with the spirit. For the mindset of the flesh, caps, is death. That's the same thing that sin leads to, death. But the fixed inclination of the spirit is life and peace, otherwise known as life in the kingdom of God. For you see the fixed or invariable mental and intentional inclination of the flesh, all caps, is hostility against God by definition. It does not submit to God's law, neither is it able to do so. Verse 8, those who are controlled by the flesh, all caps, that is, those who are in the sphere of the flesh's control, by trying to be justified by the works of the law, specifically, cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, all caps. That's not the sphere into which you've been born. But in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God actively resides in you, Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ, spirit of God, spirit of Christ, one spirit, same spirit, does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, your body is dead as far as being an instrument of sin. So you're not under the flesh, he means. But the spirit, there it is again, keeps giving life so that your body is an instrument of righteousness which agrees with the fact that we are weapons of righteousness. Verse 11, moreover, if the spirit that awoke and raised Jesus from the dead resides in you, then the one who awoke and raised Jesus from the dead, that's the Father, will make alive your mortal bodies, your mortal members themselves, in bodily resurrection. That's our hope. Through the instrumentality of his spirit who indwells you. Consequently, as a consequence, that is, of the spirit in you, siblings, we are not under obligation to the flesh, all caps, to live under the dominance of the flesh, all caps, which is the law hijacked by sin. For if you live dominated by the flesh, all caps, you must die, that is, be separated from fellowship with Christ. But if by the spirit you're putting to death the actions of the body under the control of the flesh, you will live, that is, you'll have your life You'll experience the life of the coming age even now, even now, even now. So the Israel of God, Paul's putting it right in our face, 12 times, 12 tribes under the flesh, not true Israel. 12 times, 12 tribes under the spirit, true Israel, in practice, loving God. And so it, it's all spirit from here on in. Look at 814, as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? Eschatological Israel. In the same place where it was said, you're not my people, I will call you the sons of the living God. Who is that? Israel. Eschatological Israel. For you see, you did not receive a spirit of slavery again, leading to slavish fear. On the contrary, you received the spirit of adoption. That's something that belongs to Israel in Romans 9.4. 
by whom we cry out to God the Father, Abba. Verse 16, the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're the children of God, and since we're the children, we're also heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, seeing that, not if, but seeing that we are suffering in order also to be glorified with him. What is it here? Twelve times flesh, twelve times spirit, Who wins that one? The spirit, because from 814 on, there's nothing but spirit. Nothing but the Holy Spirit. And he defines our identity as the children of God, as the sons of God, as joint heirs together with Christ, seeing we are suffering with him. Aren't we suffering with him? This is this life. And he entered his glory through suffering. So we're the very proof of our glorification is in our present sufferings that we have in these bodies of humanity in which we are embattled in the clashing juncture of the ages. Time to say amen by.